0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The United Nations declared 2019 the Year of Indigenous Languages. There's a planet full of events and celebrations taking place. But not very long ago, Indigenous languages weren't a thing to celebrate and preserve, but a thing that people wanted to stamp out. One of the more aggressive attempts took place in Canada— the government sponsored residential schools to assimilate indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. The students were isolated from their families, their language and culture disparaged, and there was abuse and health care problems.
1: I don't think our parents knew what was happening in those schools. They didn't know the horrors. They didn't know the loneliness, you know, and the deprivation of food. and you know, They didn't know any of that. And we never talked about it. And, we, and, and that wasn't talked about after you went home during the summer. You didn't talk about the beatings. You didn't talk about the being raped or what, whatever. You didn't talk about those things when you went home during the summer. You just didn't.
0: About 6,000 of the 150,000 students died at the residential schools. With me is Theodore Fontaine. He's author of the memoir, Broken Circle, The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools, Theodore is a member and former chief of the SAG King Ojibwe First Nation in Manitoba. He attended the Fort Alexander and Asinaboya Indian Residential School from 1948 to 1960. Thanks for joining us, Theodore Fontaine. I'm very happy to be here, sir. Can you tell us a bit about when you first went to a residential school and what that was like, what the process was?
1: Well, I was born on the SAG uh, First Nation. 1941 and a wonderful life with uh, my family, my uh, grandparents and my extended family uh, for the first six seven years of my life unlike uh, some of the uh, ideas that were put forth by government and churches is that we uh, we didn't have a miserable upbringing, we didn't have a miserable life, we had a wonderful wonderful life and uh, the shock uh, that came in and my uh, weeks of my 7th birthday was enormous where I got uh, I I basically I got locked up I I was incarcerated into a residential school not to uh, not to have any uh, uh, life with my family at all for the first 10 months (laughs) I slept there, I ate there, I uh, actually I I couldn't speak my language, uh, well it's not that I could but I was very very unilivical, I could only speak the Ojibwe language. So from then on I had to learn the language of English.
0: I understand your mother also went to residential schools. Was this something that was expected or normal at the time? No, no. My mom's mom died when
1: uh, she was about four years old. So the father, well, first of all, he was quite an individual bringing up uh, the family. At that time, there was no industry, no types of jobs anywhere else. So he survived, like most Indian people, through dwells you know the hunting fishing trapping all the things uh, to be alive so when his wife died my mom was four and two sisters were two and one so he had nowhere else to go so he he tried to enlist the church to take care of his children because he had heard of this institution supposedly to help indian people so they only accepted my mom because she was the oldest at four Uh, that's all she knew uh, from then on. And of course, uh, I don't know what happened with her. There were some indications of some of the uh, trials and tribulations we suffered. Uh, she never spoke about it, but she was very had it very well hidden. She left school in June of 1927 and got married in September of 1927. So Uh, She was basically uh, a child that that grew up, and that's all
0: she knew was being incarcerated at school and being kept by the religious order. What was it like for you? Were your schools affiliated with the religious order, and what was it like?
1: Well, you know, the government, of course, uh, had their view of getting rid of Indians in this country because the growing assessment by the world that uh, Indians did have in, in Canada here did have... They were keepers of the land, and basically the concept of ownership of those lands became very difficult for them. So Indian people were in the way because of the growing worldview that they were in charge. They This was their land. So uh, for me, I felt the effects of this because the first way of getting rid of a person, of an, an identity, of course, is through language. You, you talk about culture and culture, but language is the basic tool, the basic, the actual being of a, a culture. So that was the
0: strategy, It was to first get rid of Indians and their language. So within uh, how many months did you stop speaking your language when you got to residential school?
1: I got to residential schools at, uh, like, when well, I say weeks of my seventh birthday, it stopped right there. And, uh, uh, there's instances of curtailing the language to these little people like myself. And the barrage of hate and shame of being who we were started on that first day. So we couldn't speak our language. And we were subjected to uh, punishment and abuses that uh, involved uh, the stopping of this language.
0: What was it like when you went home after your first year in residential schools and you saw your parents and your community again?
1: Well, my first 10 months, of course, were exclusively at the residential school. I ate there. I slept there. I did see my mom and dad maybe every second Sunday or every third Sunday, and they would visit me. But this was just not the first year, but this happened through my career. Residential schools were... They instilled in me a shame and hatred of Indian people. So when I went home in June of that first year in 1948, I actually hated my mom and dad. I hated my grandparents, the, but my uncles, the extended families, because they were Indian or as we know now, First Nations. We hated them. And that's what had been indoctrinated into my little seven-year-old mind, starting from that first day. And uh, it took me a while to recover from that barrage, of course. And, of course, it's a lifelong effect. But for the purposes of that first summer, the two months at home, it took two or three weeks for me to to start accepting who they were. Subsequent years, everybody else that was not there, we called outsiders. They were outsiders. So we didn't call them damn Indians. We called them outsiders. That's what had been installed into our little minds and uh, what people suffered, you know. All the abuses that were handed out, everything. The curtailment of language, the punishment that was intended to make us ashamed and scared of who we were. That's the effect it had. So, you know, I had a chance. I had a chance later on to you know, apologize to my mom and dad. I, I'm not sure if I did with my granny and my, my, my grandpa because they were still alive when I first came out the first year. My grandpa died in nineteen forty seven or forty-eight, and I never had a chance. But my granny died in nineteen fifty-four by cuckoo. I never even had a chance to apologize for those feelings I had in those initial departures from residential schools. And that's my biggest biggest sorrow that I wasn't able to do that. I did with my mom. But my mom had her own way of destroying those memories that she had. Her last ten years was spent in the doldrums of Alzheimer's. Didn't have a clue about anything. Couldn't speak. But she had Alzheimer's and I thought that was in my own mind that was a form of protection for herself. Yeah. And that's yeah. the only time I had the bravery to talk about what I what I had gone through and what I suspected she had gone through and to apologize for that hate that I had for her, knowing I think subconsciously that she couldn't hear me because of her disease. I cry often about that. Every time I talk about that, like right now, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very, very, very emotional. And uh, I, I look forward to the day that I see her again. This is the first thing that's going to come out. It's my apology to her.
0: <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I'm talking with Theodore Fontaine. He's the author of Broken Circle, The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools. Theodore is a member and former chief of the Sag King Ojibwe First Nation in Manitoba, and he attended the Fort Alexander and the Assiniboia Indian Residential Schools from 1948 to 1960. You were in residential schools for quite a number of years, Over time, what kind of uh, effect does it have? I mean, you're you're describing the effect it have after just one year. But after 14 years, how does that pile up? How does it add up? It affected my whole life. I lived
1: a life of uh, uh, basically what they call us here in Canada, survivors. So I tried to survive. I survived, I believe, the effects of every little aspect of what happened with me. All the abuses, there's always some form of an effect of those abuses, from spiritual, mental, physical, and sexual abuse. Every one of these little things had a major effect on my life. You know, being scared of the dark, uh, you know, trying to leave a house before it was empty. You know, little things, uh, being scared to be alone. Claustrophobic, I guess is what you, this English language calls it, but being scared to be in a house, in any containment, almost panicking. That's the effect of my whole life. My so- nightmares, my anger, my anger, my anger and thoughts of revenge was at the forefront of my life. And I think that's what kept me alive. Those two. Anger and thoughts of revenge brought on the nightmares, of course, but it kept me going. And uh, I think that was the biggest effect of my life and uh, everything I did, uh, you know, being abandoned. I had over 40 jobs in in my lifetime, for Pete's sake. And every one of them was a success in my eyes, but it was always viewed as an abandonment of something that I was involved with. It was making a point within myself to say that I was good enough and maybe better than what other people tried to do in those jobs and activities like sports and stuff. And it can be viewed in, in the larger society as failures because they were looked at as abandonment. But in my little mind, it was always the fact that I was proving, not only to
0: myself but to everybody else, that I, I was just as good and maybe better. What was it like for your classmates? Did you see them move through the same kind of things after they had left residential school?
1: It was all the same. Most of my classmates in my first school, I'm not sure if there's anybody else alive. I think there's one or two that are still alive in by situation. But they went through the same thing, and I think they're... Uh, It's unbelievable to think that they're still alive because of what it did to me. But most of those classmates of mine have departed, you know, through the various determinants of life and death. And Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of them are not. Those determinants come to the highlight of my life when I think about how did they die. You know, it looks natural in the eyes of society, but I guarantee you, those were not normal deaths. So I'm very, very fortunate that I reached a stage of r- recognizing my lifelong goal was to get just as good as the rest of society.
0: Coming up after the break, more with Theodore Fontaine. He's the author of Broken Circle The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools, a memoir. And we'll continue the conversation about the abuses in Canada's residential schools. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're talking about Canada and residential schools with Theodore Fontaine. He's the author of the memoir Broken Circle, The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools. He's a member and former chief of the SAG King Ojibwe First Nation in Manitoba. And the United Nations has declared 2019 the Year of Indigenous Languages, you know, I wanted to talk about how Canada came to reevaluate residential schools. And you know, it really just happened in recent years that they went through this process up there in Canada. And I know that Prime Minister Harper had an apology uh, that he made in 2007. Mr. Speaker, I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential schools. The treatment of children in Indian residential schools is a sad chapter in our history. Two primary objectives of the residential school system were to remove and isolate children from the influence of their home, families, traditions, and cultures, and to assimilate them into the dominant culture. We now recognize that far too often these institutions gave rise to abuse or neglect and were inadequately controlled. And we apologize for failing to protect you. We heard the government of Canada take full responsibility for this dreadful chapter in our shared history. We heard the Prime Minister declare that this will never happen
1: again. Finally, we heard Canada say, it is sorry. Brave survivors, through the telling of their painful stories, have stripped white supremacy of its authority and legitimacy.
0: How did you go through that process with everybody else?
1: I'll be very, very frank about this. It wasn't because of their good wishes and their realization of what they tried to do to a race. It was because of a lawsuit. A lawsuit that was put against the government to look at all the survivors that were left, and survivors with representation from our organizations here, put a lawsuit into effect to sue the government. And I tell you, if each of those lawsuits had become all individual, the country of Canada would have been broke with some of the settlements, non-residential school settlements that have been forthcoming in Canada. The money that was put forth sometimes was viewed as a giveaway, not realizing how lawsuits work. And, you know, the recognition by the courts that there was, in fact, a reason to do this forced the government to sit at the table and they tried everything to try and stop the process from happening, where they went to the individual authorities, like the different provinces, and they say, you have to say, yes, we want to look at the lawsuit as being valid. But if one authority, one of those authorities, like one of the 10, 12 provinces said, no, The courts had decided there wouldn't be any lawsuit, therefore the topic of residential schools would die. That was the biggest miscalculation that the government made, thinking that at least one of the 10 or 12 provinces would say we don't recognize the lawsuit. Every one of them approved the concept that there was a right by survivors to have a lawsuit against the government. still there, and as far as the apology is concerned, the prime minister of the day thought, you know, once I apologize to these people, what they call the survivors, once I apologize, this issue will die down. And, you know, they didn't know the spirit of Indian people. That was the biggest emphasis on our well-being. And, uh, we ended up with the truth and reconciliation. Again, that's not their solution. That's a solution that came from the survivors of Canada. They devised in their interviews, of compensation. They devised these terms, these ninety-four there's more than ninety-four terms, I bet you, I tell you, that came from the mouths of survivors. And you know when you talk about the whole concept of reconciliation, reconciliation means you have to accept what it is. And this was what it was meant to be. You had to accept that there was abuses and attempts by government and churches to eradicate Indian people. So when the
0: agreement was finalized, one of the solutions was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It sounds like the process personally for you, you end up talking with some of the people who were perpetrators at the schools that you were at. Did you go through a personal kind of forgiveness with people?
1: Well, I have gone through. I've met perpetrators. As you know, most perpetrators would now be gone, of course. You know, they don't survive. Right. Right. they're a lot older than we were, of course. And I did sit across the table from a perpetrator and he did apologize to me. Not just within a day or a week or a month or even a year, but after much discussion and much much coffees we would sit down. And again, the process followed itself in the area of forgiveness where I actually said to an individual, I forgive you. with the creator on this because it's something that was not pulled out of me. Uh, It it was me and the perpetrator that came to that conclusion. And, you know, most times people don't have the opportunity, first of all, to come to that conclusion. And I've been very lucky. I've I've reached that stage where I've actually shook the hand of a
0: perpetrator and voiced my forgiveness. What range of thought about is there now? Because I I was watching a video um, which was about one of the schools that you went to. And and one of the person who was a young cook at the time at one of the residential schools said, you know, I have no idea why we were doing this. You know, why were we trying to make people not speak their language and do all this crazy stuff? It doesn't even make sense to me now. And then I imagine there are people on the other side of the spectrum who Uh, still don't want to really acknowledge indigenous culture today.
1: Exactly. It was the very fact that they wanted to eliminate the Indian people. It was power and greed. Control. Like I say, the resources of this great country, almost unlimited. But the growing worldview at the time, including the people that control the religious aspects of life here, really, really believed... Or they wanted their conscience cleared by really getting rid of the people that were in the way of development and the extortion of the rich resources of this country.
0: I'm talking with Theodore Fontaine. He's the author of the memoir, Broken Circle, The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools. In Canada, and this is something that happened uh, all through the 20th century. And the United Nations has declared 2019 the Year of Indigenous Languages. I wanted to ask if, when you started uh, wanting to speak Ojibwe again, when did you want to speak your native tongue again after the residential schools had made it um, verboten?
1: Uh, I want to thank you for allowing me to be able to do this because this was very, very, actually against the law to do, speak that language. But we never did have the capacity to forget who we were. As little boys, we weren't always locked up. We'd be outside playing out in the wild and we would not practice, but we would do what was natural by, and that would speak our own language. And the shame that was attached to that, of course, you know, a lot of times you uh, it would slip out when we were playing cowboys and Indians. Of course, nobody wanted to be an Indian. But it would slip out where we would use some Indian phrase. So it was never lost. Once you learn something at that age, it never disappears. So it started developing into, as we came out, first of all, our children. We wouldn't speak to our mums and dads very, very fluently in Ojibwe. Our children never learned the language because of the fact that we were still ashamed and and scared to speak that language. So we never talked to those children. Like, I apologize to my own daughter because I never taught her the language. So it affected the whole society. But as we started getting stronger and putting lawsuits and uh, legalities in place that recognized that we were really a real people, it started developing. Now, I, I sit at a table once a week where we speak our language exclusively. That would have never happened in the days of my mom and dad and my grandparents. Otherwise, if they got caught, they would end up in jail. So, It didn't really disappear, but it was well, well, well hidden, and it was a a great cause of shame.
0: Well, how did that actually happen for you? Did you end up saying, well, I want to join some language circles? How did that really pop into your head to do that?
1: Well, before all of this activity about reconciliation happened, I went through a process that dealt with one of the determinants of life and death. And uh, one of the determinants were, of, of course, health and suicide. And uh, I came out of that thinking, you know, this leading aspect of my life of hate and thoughts of revenge is going to become so engulfing in me that oh, i I got to do something. So I started reliving. I was going to go across a, a major lake here in northern Canada. Uh, not realizing that I would never come out of it. But that was a thought of departing this land, you see. Achieving a point where I had reached one of the determinants of life and death. And when I came out of that, I take my life and that's over 30, 30, 40 years ago. And, uh, and I'm talking about suicide because of all the things that kept coming back, my nightmares, uh, I still have nightmares for Pete's sake. My wife and I lived through live through some of the, the nightmares that come back because of the instances of that life in residential school, those instances of abuse. I still live with that, but I'm getting well. I'm, I'm really getting better. So what I do now, I do everything I can to speak with someone. My wife is not Aboriginal. She's not First Nation. But my goodness, she understands more than anybody else. I believe that's not Aboriginal but our language. (laughs) We walk hand in hand in this path. And uh, I I think I couldn't be more happier than anything. I'm gone back to being seven years old again, six years old. So now one of the things I do, once a week, I make it a habit. I make it a, a, a thing that I have to do. I go to a table called language table. And I meet other survivors, other First Nations people that are reviving the language. And that's what we speak. We speak Ojibwe for an hour and a half, every Friday afternoon. And the most amazing part of it was people realizing, like CBC Radio, CTV Radio, television came and visited us a few times and they're amazed they're amazed that these people can speak the way they can in their language of course they don't know what it means so We can say anything we want without them knowing that it's that we're very proficient so that's the sort of stuff they talk about schools it's okay to teach skills the grammar and the proper uh, structures of what a language is but to speak the language itself this is the way we do it. I meet people there, and uh, the language itself is so wonderful. It's not like we go to the uh, Webster's Dictionary, <laughs> but it comes from a lifelong of speaking it. Say some other things in Ojibwe. As soon as we finished this interview, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> but the description I used, it doesn't say toilet, it doesn't say bathroom, but it describes me leaving this chair and going to do my <laughs> what I have to do. <laughs> and it's not a bad word, but it's a very descriptive word, it's very understandable. So I love the language. It's more descriptive than any other language that I know
0: of. Well, of course, I want to know English. Are you optimistic about indigenous languages? There's been a lot of attempts like yours and successful attempts at revival. There's other situations where it seems pretty desperate and languages are going to die out. But do you think uh, human beings are on the right track on this thing? Oh, I I can't tell you how much they are, how much we are.
1: (laughs) I, I go to schools, kindergarten to about grade six right now, twice a week. And of course, what do we talk about? The schools are satisfied. The school divisions are satisfying the terms of the 94 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What I do, my wife accompanies me, is I meet these kids once a week. And I try and not only refer to my own language and my own culture, but I refer to them to be proud of who they are. They don't have to force it on anybody, but be proud. And I was in a large mall here called Polo Park Mall and you know about halfway out a quarter of the way at the mall I heard I heard this yelling Aninichi Ogan Theodore Aninichi Ogan a small little voice yelling at me from a quarter of the distance at the mall saying Theodore my partner my friend and this was one of the little grade fours or grade five kids that I had in my classes and That's the purpose. They weren't scared to say, and they weren't First Nation, they weren't Aboriginal, but it's a language that they've gotten very comfortable and that they realize is real. So that's the things that that work, the minimal things that you look at grade one, grade two, grade four, grade fives. And it's very opposite strategy that one of our political leaders stated in the 20s, the way to get rid of the Indian is to get rid of the Indian in the children. And that means taking away their pride of who they are. Somebody once said, one of our major judges here in Canada, education got us into this mess, and it's education that's going to get us out. Sometimes it's too late for adults to learn that the language is real and it's wonderful. But the children, they carry this. So... I feel very very honored to be able to work with my little friends and uh, I just left school here Margaret Park School before I came on to this interview and you can't describe the love and the honor that you get from these kids even though they, they know who you are they know that you're an Indian but the hugs and the warm wishes I get from them is is wonderful. That's exactly opposite of what the government tried to do in, in the evolution of this policy. So there's things that have to happen, and they're starting to take hold across the country. I go now to citizenship courts, where new Canadians are brought in. And I still don't agree with some of the concepts that they use there, but they ask us to come in like shoe showcase. <laughs> Like North America used to do, they took some Indians across to Europe to show them who lived here. We don't use that concept, but we try and show them that we are real here. That's another aspect of uh, society that, that I'm really, really looking forward to working with. You have people from other countries that come here to prove that we were here before anybody else. So hopefully that'll take hold across the country as we start talking about it.
0: There's little things that could be done, it,
1: and it starts very, very small, but it's
0: there. Theodore Fontaine is author of the memoir Broken Circle, The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools. He's a member and former chief of the Sag King Ojibwe First Nation in Manitoba, and he attended the Fort Alexander and uh, Siniboya Residential Schools from uh, 1948 to 1960 Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, recovering your language and identity. It's uh, United Nations Year of the Indigenous Languages.
1: Can I say one thing? Sure. We have no word for goodbye. That's awesome. No, all we say is, we'll see you again soon. Weeba, weeba minoga go up mininakok, nichi My friends will talk to you again very, very soon, hopefully. But I want to say something first. I have a daughter and two grandkids that reside in your great country. Where at? Just north of where you live. One of the big education institutions houses my daughter and it's just wrapping up her doctorate there. One of my little grandsons is on his second year of pre-med, for Pete's sake, <laughs> of which they never realized that an Indian person could get there. So I want to thank you. For having my daughter
0: and her two boys and her husband there. I'm very proud of that. Uh, you should be. Well, I'm glad we got to do this, Theodore. witch <laughs> Nietzsche. We'll see you again soon. K'chimigwetch. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow marks International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples, and uh, it's been celebrated at the United Nations since 1982. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Chicago young people on a trip to the Arctic Circle. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. A group of Chicago students recently headed north, and I mean really far north, to the Arctic. They're part of an educational expedition led by the nonprofit Students on Ice that brings young people from around the world together to study sustainability and global connections. They're also youth from indigenous communities in the polar regions along for the ride. We had a chance to speak with a couple of the students from Chicago via satellite phone while they were on a ship called the Zodiac during the trip. Just a warning that the connection was a bit shaky at times. Worldview's Steve Bynum and Jenny Friedland spoke with the expedition manager, Shirley Mann, on what the expedition's about.
2: This expedition is led by students on ice, and it's our 19th annual Arctic expedition. Um, We've been leading uh, these educational journeys to the polar regions for 19 years, or just about 20 years. And this year's expedition includes 130 students from around the world. Um, They are high school students and post-secondary students in college and university. Um, And all together, our students and staff represent 21 countries from across the globe, which um, we're really happy about and it creates a really diverse global community on the ship. Uh, We also have youth representatives from all eight uh, circumpolar countries, which is really exciting, and about 50% of our students this year um, are indigenous, mostly Inuit, representing different Inuit regions in the Arctic. Currently, we are calling you from the Canadian Eastern Arctic. Uh, It's in the territory of Nunavut. We are currently at a spot called Cape Graham Moor, which is... uh, a migratory bird sanctuary in the Canadian arctic um... our journey altogether is just a little over two weeks and we started in Canada in the capital in Ottawa and we spent the first part of our journey in Greenland actually on the western coast of Greenland um... and so we sailed up the west coast exploring fjords visiting different communities we also visited the Ilulisat Ice Fjord Uh, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's nicknamed uh, as the World's Largest Iceberg Factory. So most of the icebergs you see in the Arctic actually come from this specific ice fjord, and our students got a chance to visit that. The rest of our journey takes place in the Canadian Arctic, which is where we are right now, and all in all, it's an educational journey for our students to explore different aspects of the Arctic uh, we're learning about climate change and also climate adaptation. We're learning about ocean literacy and conservation, and we're engaging with um, Inuit people, so the indigenous people who have always lived in the Arctic, to learn about culture and traditions.
1: So why, why the Arctic, to learn about these climate issues or indigenous ways of living? Why is that the location um, you all have chosen?
2: students and I have been using the polar regions, both the Arctic and the Antarctic, as classrooms and as platforms for education for, for 20 years. And we, we do this because the polar regions are the cornerstones of the Earth's ecosystems. What, stay, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Um, what happens here has a ripple effect across the entire planet. Um, the changing ocean here affects the oceans around the globe, Um, And we want our students to see that change firsthand. Um, You know, we're handing over this planet to them. And if they have a better understanding and a deeper connection with what happens in the Arctic, they'll be able to take that knowledge home and apply it to their education and their career and their future life choices.
0: So uh, tell us about some of the the local kids that are on this
3: trip with you.
2: Mm Hmm. Yes, we've got a large uh, number of Inuit youth um, on our expedition and these are students that come from communities in the Arctic in Canada. Uh, we also have students from Alaska uh, and Greenland and different, um, uh, different Nor- uh, Arctic countries, so Sweden, Finland, Norway, uh, Russia, and Iceland. Um, a lot of the communities that we're visiting here are Greenlandic communities and Canadian Arctic communities. Um, and it's important for our youth from different parts of the world to meet their peers. Um, and these are youth that come from really different uh, lifestyles. And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting here with Donovan and Liliana, who are from Chicago. And they've they've now engaged with students from around the world, but also with students their own age who have always grown up in the Arctic and who have always called the Arctic home.
0: One of the students out there in the ship with expedition manager Shirley Mann is Liliana Herrera, and Liliana is from Chicago. She's a junior at Roberto Clemente Community Academy in Humboldt Park. Liliana told Worldview's Steve Bynum and Jenny Friedland about why it's important for Chicagoans to learn about the Arctic even if it's thousands of miles away.
4: I'm in a class called Embark and I started it sophomore year which I just passed and like that class really pushed me to like want to do more, want to explore new things because like in school we don't really get the opportunity to like explore and learn about things that like, most Chicago kids don't know about, like, we are always in the city, we don't get to see new things, and, and learning more about the world, because in school, we don't really, like, learn things that we need to know, they really, like, just take us different places around Chicago, and any opportunity we get, like, they, they tell us about new things we can do, and, like, during the class, like, we just try to get more comfortable with each other, and, like, talk about how we feel, and, It's just really about finding ourselves.
3: How did you feel when they said, "Hey, do you want to go to the Arctic?" Were you nervous about it? Were you excited? What was your reaction?
4: Well, it was a day in class, and we were our teacher tells us about uh, new opportunities, and she was telling us that Embark gets to take two students every year, and I never go nowhere, and I'm like, "Well, I'm not gonna get this," and I. Like, she would just tell us about it, and it looked so cool. They would show us all the pictures, and they would tell us about, like, what they do on the trip, and it just seemed like, like, something I wouldn't get to do.
1: So, one thing we wanted to ask you is, what have you seen so far? You've been on this boat, you've been traveling. What have your days been like? What are some of the coolest things you've seen?
4: I've been seeing a lot. Like, it's been, like, mind-blowing. Like, when... You think about, like, kids from Chicago, nobody ever thinks that we can live like this. They don't think we can. We have the potential to do things like this. And the community members feel open with us. It feels like I'm back home. They, they're they making us feel at home because they tell us about what goes on in their communities. They tell us how they feel about, like, things they've been through. And we've just seen a lot of things. We're in the middle of the ocean, and I'm just, like, looking out. Uh, and all I see is so many birds and icebergs, and it's like, when am I going to get to see this? Like, I never see this in Chicago. I don't... People from Chicago would look at this, like, in movies or, like, in pictures, and just knowing that two of us can do this makes me, like, want to tell other kids that there's
3: there's more they can do.
0: And what about... Um what have you seen about climate change and how it's affecting us? What are you bringing back about um, the environment and climate
3: change and what you think uh, the situation is?
4: Well, talking to the community members, they said that a lot of their icebergs have been melting and it's way warmer than it used to be. And that shows a lot. Like, they've said that they never had this, this little ice and they, it's, it's never been this hot in their summer. And we've seen like a lot of icebergs fall and like we've even seen like an, a whole iceberg slip over and it's like showing how it's all melting slowly and like when stuff like that happens it's like there's really things going on that we don't see because we're in Chicago like and I feel like it affects us a lot because if you think about it like once these icebergs like melt the water is going to go up a lot like I've noticed that um Back at home at the lake, the water's overflowing. And like now that I'm here, it's like I see why all these icebergs are melting and the proof is right in front of my face. Like, I don't know, it, it makes me realize a lot of things.
0: That was Clemente High School junior Liliana Herrera. I'm Jerome McDonald and this is Worldview on WBEZ. We're hearing some audio postcards from the Chicago Public School students who went on an expedition through the Arctic. Also on the Zodiac Polar Exploration Ship is Donovan Luckett. He told Worldview Steve Bynum and Jenny Friedland about how he's seeing the effects of climate change firsthand on the trip.
3: I'm 17. I'm from the south side of Chicago, west Englewood side. Um, i go to school at Bogan High School. That's on the southwest side of Chicago in Ashburn. Um, right now, i at Cape Graymore, um um, we see great, like, a lot of great, you know, mountains and cliffs and stuff. And there's a lot of birds you really don't see in Chicago So, and, and icebergs and stuff, so it's so cool to be out here. Um, Traveling like, travel around, you know, this area in the Arctic Circle, and we um, see a lot of, you know, things you really don't see in Chicago, like, you know, icebergs and, you know, a lot of mountain and stuff, you really don't see this in Chicago, so just, like, a very new experience, you know, I'm experiencing right now, so, you know, I'm very grateful for this, you know, opportunity.
0: What about some of the people you saw, um, the uh, Native people, Indigenous people there? What kind, How How is it meeting them? What did you all talk about?
3: Well, so, you know, one of the uh, towns went to Umanac, which is in Greenland. Um, the people there are, you know, very kind. We usually talk about, like, you know, their culture, you know, what, you know, they do, you know, in their country and stuff. The country—not uh, not country, but, you know, in their little town and stuff. So— you know they teach us. You know the games they play, or you know the things they do, or how they survive. Usually, you know they live off fishing, or you know playing games called you know leg leg wrestling, which is you know when they you know try to flip each other their legs. Yeah, you know we you know learn a few things from them, and you know how and we do have you know people from these you know cities or you know countries or towns that are actually on the boat with us that are that also teaching us you know where the ways of their life.
1: What have you learned about climate change and the climate crisis? Are there things you're going to bring back to Chicago?
3: I mean, I learned a lot about climate change. Like, being here for only the two days when we went to the Arctic and seeing the iceberg, I saw a lot like that, that was happening. First time we got close, you know, to the iceberg. You know, the whole thing, the whole, like, the whole ice fell off the iceberg and created a big wave toward like zodiac, so we almost fell off the zodiac.
1: Has this made you think differently about climate change? Like when you come back to Chicago, is there stuff you want people
2: to know, or stuff that you're going to change about how you you interact with the environment?
3: Yes, it's a lot of things. Cause like seeing this right now, seeing like you know ice melting, seeing that you know the glaciers flipping over, and seeing the glaciers melting and stuff, it made me you know realize that the things we're doing right now in the city and right now in the world is is dangerous. Like. We, the ice melt at a rapid rate and if, you know, if all these, all these, you know, ice caps and icebergs melt away as sea level going to rise. So, you know, when I come back to the city, it makes me realize that, yes, something needs to change. We as, you know, people and as a community need to, you know, change our ways or just, you know, save these, you know, icebergs, you know, in the Arctic. Yeah, you know, I'm coming, you know, I'm coming back in a couple more days, but, you know, I want to tell my take every opportunity you get you feel me like you know you'll never be able to see you know all this again so you know you know i'm you know enjoying my time you know enjoying my time you know getting the view in you know before i come back to the city and, and you know be able to tell my friends about it
0: that was donovan luckett phoning in by satellite from the zodiac polar exploration ship moored off the canadian arctic coast he goes to bogan high school in ashburn on chicago's southwest side. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll talk about the Black Harvest Film Festival. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.